Good morning. Good morning, Good morning to everyone in our church and, and especially to the, to the Pebbler family. That was awesome. He's so cute. He is really so cute and so, and so well-dressed. I, um, if, uh, I mean, if you're not familiar with, uh, with, with my family, I have, I have six kids. I'm very well, uh, have been through this age of, of, of kids a, a, a lot. And, and one thing that I was thinking about this week, and it'll make sense in, in, in a couple minutes, but um, is I, we, we got thrust back. We finally got out of like the real baby kind of shows, like t- television shows that are on. You know, like the uh, like the, all the annoying stuff that's on there out on Nickelodeon and Disney and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it started making me think this week as I thought about Neighbors, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute. I started thinking about the TV shows that I watched when I was a kid. Um, anyone remember Sesame Street? Come on, that was a great show. I think it's still kicking around, too. I, I think Sesame Street's still kicking around for sure. It better than ever. Now, this one... This one, no, 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 I don't, my, my shows when I was a kid weren't annoying. It's the new shows now that, He-Man. I don't remember He-Man <laughs> by the power of Grayskull. I think that was actually my favorite show when, when, when I was a kid, but a close second would have to be Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? Um, there's even a new movie coming out uh, with Tom Hanks as, uh, as Fred Rogers, um, this show really did change a lot of kids' television for, for years uh, to come after he started it. But what you, what you might not know about Fred Rogers was, did you know he was actually in seminary? He was actually going to seminary to become an ordained minister when he decided to start this show. Uh, Fred Rogers was so, just couldn't believe the quality of television that was on in, in that time. And he, he just couldn't believe what people were willing to do for entertainment. Now, remember, this is back a while ago, pies in the face and, you know, that kind of stuff. He couldn't stand it. I think it was stuff like Bozo the Clown. He just couldn't wrap his mind around why kids would watch that kind of stuff. And so he's like, you know what? Instead of just rallying against the stuff I don't like, I'm going to actually go into a medium that is uh, something that I think I can maybe improve and make better. And so he started Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And what's really cool is the seminary that he was at actually let him continue to be a student. And when, when he was done, they actually commissioned him and ordained him uh, to be what they called their, a TV evangelist. Um, he actually considered that a ministry of his to be doing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He thought he was a dad for kids who didn't necessarily have dad kind of figures in their home. And as a matter of fact, he refused to even have kids on his show because he didn't want any sibling rivalry with the kids on the show, with the kids that saw him in the living room watching him on TV. And so he would, if you remember the show, he would actually have dialogue back and forth like, how are you doing this morning? And then we would answer, we're doing good, Mr. Rogers, right? And he always ended his show with these words, this song. He would say, won't you please, please, won't you please be my neighbor? You see, Fred Rogers became a neighbor. He kind of took this idea of this Western idea of neighbors as only being those who live directly around us and kind of brought neighborhood into your television sets. And he kind of reframed at least how American TV defined neighbor. And what's really interesting, and now here's where you're going to understand why I was thinking about this this week. This is almost a T straight from our gospel reading from this morning. Where a guy asks Jesus, he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds 
with a story, as he so often does. Let's, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, Son Jesus, and Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, as we pray every week, we come before you this morning humbly and in awe and at your feet, at the foot of the cross, for what you've done for us and what you continue to do. God, we ask this morning for new eyes to see the world with in the way that you see it. God, we ask for new hearts, a new ethos, a new being, new souls, new lungs to breathe in your presence. God, we ask for you to give us a word this morning. No matter where we may be in our journey with you, give us a word this morning directly from you. We pray all these things in your most holy name. Amen. All right, if you'd like to open up a, a Bible, we're going to spend uh, our time this morning in a familiar text for many, uh, titled a lot of times the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you can find that in uh, Luke chapter 10, 25. It'll also be up there for you to read um, up on, in, in the screens as well. And so we start off in verse 25. Um, we read Luke writes, a lawyer got up and put Jesus on the spot. Teacher, he said, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Well, replied Jesus, what is written in the law? What's your interpretation of it? You shall love the Lord your God, he replied, with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength and all your understanding and your neighbor as yourself. Well said, replied Jesus, so do that and you will live. Ah, said the lawyer, wanting to win the point, but who is my neighbor? Jesus rose to the challenge. Once upon a time, he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was set upon by brigands. They stripped him and beat him and ran off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he went past on the opposite side. So too, a Levite came by the place. He saw him too, but he also went past on the opposite side. But a traveling Samaritan came to where he was. When he saw him, he was filled with pity. He came over to him and bound up his wombs, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put him on his own beast and took him to an inn and looked after him. The next morning, as he was going on his way, he gave the innkeeper two diners. Take care of him, he said, and on my way back, I will pay you whatever else you need to spend on him. Which of these three do you think turned out to be the neighbor of the man who was set upon by the brigand, said Jesus? Uh, well, the one who showed mercy on him, came the reply from the lawyer. Well, Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. So again, like I said, this may be a story that is somewhat familiar to, to, to many of us, especially if you grew up in, in Sunday schools, VBSs, grew up in, in the church. Um, this is a story where we have a lawyer, uh, a lawyer who is very well versed in religious Jewish law, trying to you know, trap Jesus into saying something that he could put Jesus up on charges with. 
which is what we know in the end of the day is what got Jesus killed uh, later on in, in the Gospels. And so we start off here with N.T. Wright's translation with this lawyer putting Jesus on the spot. And, and in an area where they were filled with people, there was somewhere where there was a lot of people, he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age? They were always trying to figure this out, kind of the same as we are even, you know, even today. What is on the other side of eternity? What else is on this other side of this coming age, the age that is to come? And so Jesus, as he so often does, doesn't really give the guy an answer right off the bat. He simply asks him a question. He goes, well, what is written in the law? The guy said, what do I need to do? So Jesus goes, okay, well, here's the law. Here's what you need to do. He goes, what's your interpretation of the law? And so this lawyer, remember, this lawyer is very well versed in the law. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God, right? That was the Shema. That was the Israel prayer from, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. What's really interesting is this lawyer also adds on the second half of this that Jesus adds on earlier in his ministry. And he says, this lawyer had obviously been and heard Jesus teaching before. He goes, you shall love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, strength, and your understanding. But he adds in it, the lawyer adds in, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus simply says, do this and you will live. Notice what Jesus did here. Jesus flipped the script. The lawyer was asking, what do I do for the coming age? And Jesus says, do this and you will live. As in live in the here and the now, which also continues into the coming age. But you see, Jesus was just as interested, sometimes if not more interested, in the here and the now as we go towards that other side of eternity. But that wasn't quite good enough for the lawyer. He, he knew that he could trap Jesus with this question. He says, ah, he wanted to win the point, but who? He asks now, who is my neighbor? I.e., what is he asking here? Who is it that you're telling me that I have to love? And so Jesus tells this story. And this is the story that many of us are very familiar with, where there's a guy who is a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 16 miles, give or take, uh, you, know, you know, a couple of percentage points, I guess. But about 16-mile walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this man is walking not very well advised because for some reason he's walking by himself. And what happens when this guy is walking by himself? There were these criminals in, in the first century that were known as brigands. Do you remember we, I talked about brigands a, a, a while back when we talked about Jesus on his throne on the cross with Barabbas, right? Barabbas was arrested for being a brigand, right? A brigand was someone, was a band of robbers who would wait in mountains and behind trees to rob people when they didn't think they were back there. That was basically their, their lifestyle. That was their way of, of survival of the fittest. They would rob people on the side of the highway. And so Jesus knows this, and he tells this as the story. This guy's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 16-mile walk, going to take him at least probably the whole day, if not two days, depending on how fast he was going. And this guy is now traveling, and these brigands come out of the woods. They take all of his clothes. They, they, they strip him bare. They take all of his possessions, and they leave him what the text says, half dead on the side of the road. I get this sense this guy is not even able to, you know, really mutter much of a thought process out to the world that's around him because he's, he's left for half dead. Half dead is not a good spot to be. And so one of his own, one of his own Israel people come walking by, a priest. 
Now, the priests were responsible for the temple. The priests were the ones who were responsible for looking out for the Jewish people in the temple. And so this guy probably sees the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the priest coming out of the corner of his eye and goes, okay, thank God. Thank Yahweh there is a priest coming. He's going to save me. What does the priest do, though? The priest actually walks on the other side of the road and just continues on and ignores the guy. So then a Levite comes along. Levites worked under the priests. They were kind of the ones responsible for the sacrifices and letting people in or out of the different, you know, chambers that they built in the, in the temple. And so now the Levite comes by and, and maybe this guy's thinking to himself, okay, the priest couldn't help me. He was too busy. He's too important. But of course this Levite's going to be able to help me. He's a man of Yahweh. But wait a minute. What does the guy do? The guy also crosses the other side of the road and takes off. Then comes the hated Samaritan. Now, if you're familiar with first century Palestine, first century Israel, it's actually not too different than Israel-Palestine relations today. But the Israelites and the Samaritans did not get along. Actually, that's an understatement. They hated each other. One group thought, we need to worship God, Yahweh, at the temple. One group thought, we need to worship God, at Mount Gerizim, therefore you're wrong, you know you're wrong, you're wrong. They separated themselves, they couldn't stand each other. And so this guy sitting on the side of the road who's half dead, both of his people took off. What you're probably thinking when this hated Samaritan's the one that's walking by now. He's probably thinking, I got no hope, half dead's going to probably turn to 100% dead here in just a few hours. But lo and behold, Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story, right? This Samaritan comes, he, 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 he bandages up the wound. It actually says he was filled with pity. He was filled with sorrow and compassion. The same things that the priest and the Levite should have been filled with, but weren't. And so this Samaritan then takes this Jewish guy, puts him on the back of his own, uh, whatever animal he was riding, brings him to an inn, spends a lot of money to keep him in this inn. And there's the end of Jesus' story. So Jesus now asks a brilliant question. Okay, lawyer, you who are versed in the law, who then after this story would you say was a neighbor to that guy? And the lawyer had no choice but to answer the one who showed him mercy. The guy who we hate, the guy who we don't like, the one who we've made the them, he's the one who actually was the hero and the neighbor in the story. So Jesus said to this guy, well, you go then and do the same. He says, this is how you will live. Go and do this. This is how you will live now and in the coming age. It sounds pretty simple uh, when you start reading through the Good Samaritan parable because I think we've heard it so many times. It's easy to look at this parable and say, go and do the same, right? Like, let's go and do the same. Let's go do good for others who are in need, right? But sometimes we become so familiar with texts that I think we sometimes forget about the nuances and the context of which Jesus might be trying to dig in and maybe where the Spirit's trying to bring our hearts. And so what are a couple things that we can take from this text this morning? The first and the most simple is that obviously do good to those who are in need, right? How many sermons, how many books, how many organizations are out there that have the word Samaritan on them where the basic premise of it is just as a human, do good for someone else who's a human being, right? Simplest, probably most basic thing we can take from this parable of the good Samaritan. Now, if you also recognize the cultural context of 
the Samaritans and how they hated each other. The second thing we can really kind of pull from this text is that we can recognize that it's the hated Samaritan is our neighbor, right? This was Mr. Rogers. No matter who it is, whether they are in your tribe or not, that's your neighbor. The neighbor in this story is the one who is in need. The neighbor in this story was the one who provided the need. So number two, we can definitely see that even though we might not like somebody, that also is who Jesus is telling us is our neighbor. But what seems to truly lie at the heart of this parable is the answer to the question the lawyer was really asking. If you really dig into this text, you get this sense that this lawyer was really asking, we just said it a minute ago, is who is it that I actually have to love? Like, I know you tell me to love people, but who is it? Is there some people I don't have to love? Because that would make life a lot easier, right? This guy's probably thinking the lawyer. It would make life a lot easier if I don't have to love them and I can only work on, worry about loving us, these Israel people, the Jewish people that we got. This guy was really asking, who is considered God's people? Who's in? He's asking, who's out, Jesus? Jesus, who gets a seat at the table? Jesus, who is my neighbor that I actually have to love? I think this question was designed. Remember, this guy was smart. He was a lawyer. He knew the law in and out. He knew every single thing. He knew the right things to say. I think this question was designed to prove to the people that Jesus was a heretic when he spoke of God's love as being bigger than just for the Israelite people. I think this lawyer was trying to trap Jesus into saying, yes, my love is God's love. Yahweh's love is bigger than just us, our Israelite people. These lawyers and most of Jesus' contemporaries would have had no problem with Jesus saying, love your neighbor, those who live next door next to you, because guess what? They lived in or around Jerusalem, or at least in Israel, where people around them, the neighbors were people who looked like them, talked like them, acted like them, thought like them. The problem for this lawyer and so many other people was when Jesus' definition of neighbor, just like Mr. Rogers, expanded out from those who you are right next to, where loving your neighbor was redefined and broadened to include those outside of the tribe. In a sense, this lawyer was trying to battle Jesus' claim from John 3.16, right? We know John 3.16 from so many different ways in our, in our world. This is N.T. Wright's version of, uh, or a translation rather, of John 3.16. He says, this you see is how much God loved the world, enough to give his only special son so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. Right? We know this a lot of times. It's over God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I get the sense that this lawyer was battling that claim of Jesus that he was here for the world, that God actually loves the world. But Jesus explains through this parable and with his exchange with the lawyer that John 3.16 is the fulfillment of this great command of loving others and loving God, loving our neighbors and all those who are in need. Every week we have one quote from N.T. Wright in this uh, Kingdom Project. Here's the one quote for for the day. N.T. Wright writes, he says, What is at stake then and now? 
is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity, or whether we will see it as a call and a challenge to extend that love, extend that grace to the whole world, right? For God so loved the world. He says, no church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road like the guy in this parable. No church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions. We love the easy way out. We love the easy definitions of, well, who's my neighbor? Only the people I like, right? We love those definitions because it makes life easier. Do you see what N.T. Wright's saying here? That Jesus loves every single human being in the world. And even though we as the church, especially in recent history, seem to have made the mission more about enrichment of ourselves and self-satisfaction, it seems like sometimes we've lost touch with this call to go out and be with our neighbors, those around the world who are lying half dead in the middle of the road. He still calls us. Jesus still calls us and gives us the dignity to transform our hearts and to transform our vision towards those people God calls his children. And what is it that God wants to transform in our hearts? It's that we would truly believe in John 3.16. That we would truly believe that God so loved the world, including us, that we would truly believe that it's for our own salvation, but also that there are no bounds to God's love. Jesus wants to transform our hearts so that way there are no borders, no walls, nothing, absolutely nothing that contain God's overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love for his children. Jesus is saying that all of our human definitions of what it means to love, every single thing that we think that we know about love just gets thrown out, be, out the window because there is room in Jesus' family for all of us. There is room in Jesus' kingdom for us, but there's also room in Jesus' kingdom for those who we deem as the other or the outsider or the them. But this is hard. It was hard for this lawyer. It was hard for people in the first century. It's hard for us because we love to name the ones we hate the most. That could be the American, our, our, us as Americans' favorite pastime. Honestly, if you go on any social media network or you have conversations with people or God forbid you watch the news once in a while, it seems like we've made it our greatest pastime to hate the ones we hate the most. We love to draw lines in the sand. We love to create an us versus them narrative. We love to say you're not a part of us. We love to say you're not in. We're in, but you're not in. But this is not what Jesus is saying to us here. Jesus is saying that there's always enough room for God's love. There's always enough room for God's love. I remember when we started doing, uh, poking our nose into the foster care system in New Hampshire. There were, there were some family and friends who had some, you know, uh, you know well-intended, you know, uh, concern. You know, hey, you already have four kids. Um, are you going to be able to spread that love out? amongst even adding more kids into your home. 
And there was someone uh, who Anna uh, is friends with who uh, had said, uh, you know, she also had done foster care and adoption, told Anna, she goes, you know, I've noticed in our life, um, you know, we had a lot of kids and we started doing foster care adoption. And, and actually, we didn't have to divide our love now from four to six. Actually, love multiplied. And love just kept multiplying with every kid that we brought in our home. And that's what Jesus is saying here. God's love multiplies. God, there's not only like a certain amount of love God has that can only be doled out like in little tiny bits. God's love can multiply. This is our story. Sinners and saints, there is room in Jesus' kingdom project for you. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't even care who you are. I'm here to tell you this morning, there is room for you in God's story. There's room for you at God's table. Don't ever let anybody, don't ever let a politician, don't ever let a pastor tell you otherwise. Don't ever let, you tell, don't ever let someone tell you that you don't belong. Don't ever, don't ever let someone tell you that there's not a seat for you at Jesus' table. God's love does not do what we tell it to do. We don't get to decide who God loves and who God doesn't. For God so loved the world. Jesus was born for the world. Jesus went to the cross for the world. Jesus bled and died. Jesus suffered an excruciating death for the world. Jesus entered into hell and back again for the world. Jesus rose again for the world. The world including you, the world including me, and for anyone else, anyone else who's out there in the world, anyone else who may be listening to this as a podcast later on, Jesus came to this world for you. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus came to proclaim victory for all those in need. All those who are lost, even leaving the 99 who consider themselves the them or rather the us, to be a neighbor to that one on the outside. Jesus is once again in our Kingdom Project series flipping the script on its head. Jesus is inviting us to love with a new imagination, to love without boundaries, to love without borders, and to love and invite others to a table that is so long that we can't even see the end of it. It's time for us as the church in the West to drop the labels, to stop putting God's love in a box. Stop putting God's love in the box that only includes the us and excludes those who we deem as the them. If the call of the church is to seek out the lost, to love our neighbors, and let's face it, there's a lot of neighbors out in the world who may be dying on the side of the road, then we do a disservice to this kingdom and his project if all we can see are the saved, if all we can see are those who are like us and all we can see are those who we deem as pure, it's time for us to love and to be creative in how we express that love. How can we expect a people that are lost to know a God that they can't see? 
How can we expect people to know that God loves them, a God who they actually can't visibly see, if the church they can see seems to not even like them? To borrow a question that I heard this last week in um, one of my favorite preachers that was preaching in in a podcast, he said, he asked this question to his congregation. He goes, is the gospel of Jesus... Is the God so love the world gospel, the good news that you've sunk your heart into? He says, or does there still need to be bad guys in your story to make you feel safe and good? Because I'm telling you this morning, if you need bad guys in your story to make you feel safe and you feel good, Jesus will shatter that false narrative of his gospel every single time. Each and every time you come into contact with him and his better word, he'll shatter that notion that you are better than someone else. Every single time. So if you're sitting here this morning, or if you're listening to this on on the podcast later, I'm here to tell you that Jesus and his love is for you. Even if you think that you've gone so far that there's no way of turning it around, Jesus' love is for you. This is the really good news of the gospel that Jesus' love is for you. I'm going to finish with these few words from a a, a group that I uh, like their music a lot called Common Hymnal. And they have a song that's out there that's titled Not Just For Me. And the entire song says the same words over and over again. Jesus, you're not just for me. Jesus, you're not just for me. Jesus, you're not just for me. They say that the entire song. It's basically a worship song saying, hey, Jesus, I recognize it's not just all about me. It's also about other people. And, but here's the one verse that they add in there. And I think I have it up there, yeah. And we'll end with these words. They say, you're the God who crosses lines to meet the ones who've been denied. You're always near no one's too far from you. And you're the God who knows the song of every tribe and every tongue. And as we are, we all belong to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As we leave this hour of worship, and move into the worship of our lives this afternoon and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and on and on. May we see our neighbors, our neighbors next door, our neighbors across the street, the neighbors across town, across the country, across the world. May we see our neighbors, your children, with the same eyes that you see. Dare I say, God, if we see them laying half dead in the middle of the road, we would be like the Good Samaritan and not pass by. God, you love us. You love each and every one of us, no matter what has happened in our past. God, you are the God who we sang about it this morning, that erases all of that when you went to the cross and when you pronounced your judgment, Father, forgive them. That was it. 
You yelled out, it's been accomplished, it's done, it's been finished, it never needs to happen again. My grace is enough for you and for you and for you and for you. God, may we always be mindful of that. Well, may we always be remembered of your son. Of your son who loved us so much that he gave his life. Father, as we approach your table, as we approach Jesus' table this morning, may we do so with a worthy heart, a heart that does not come forward with hasty condemnations and judgments of others, but with a heart that includes and invites all to feast with you, as a foretaste of that beautiful feast to come. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.